of a society which enjoyed a high degree of liberty while the institutions of representative government were minimal couldn't actually have existed for a very long time. It was an anomaly and it could only go one of two ways. One was to enhance the level of democracy and the other was the way we've seen, which was to match the low level of democracy by the low level of liberty. And that's where we are today. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I'm your host, Renita Hora, and I have with me today Stephen Vines, who is a British journalist, writer, broadcaster, restauranteur. He was based in Hong Kong from 1987 to 2021, but then suddenly he upped and went back home to England. Steve, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's my pleasure. So Steve, you were, you know, jumping right into it. You were in Hong Kong for a very, very long time, 35 years. And albeit you started off as a journalist and you were a journalist right through, you did so many things. You were a founding member of the Civic Party. So this was really home in so many ways. What happened? Why did you leave? Well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, not only was it home for me, I assumed that I was there for the duration. I mean, there was nothing about being in Hong Kong um, that that suggested to me that I was going to be leaving until, until it became clear to me that what I did as a journalist, indeed, even what I was doing in my business life, was threatened by the rapid and seemingly um, fast flow, not seemingly, actually fast flowing series of events that have occurred in Hong Kong in the past, particularly past 15 months since the introduction of the national security law, which has had the effect of stamping out the founding principle of the Hong Kong special administrative region. This is the principle that was enunciated by China's paramount leader, the late Deng Xiaoping, who said that in Hong Kong and the mainland, there would be one country, but two systems. Hong Kong would Mm. have its distinctive way of life and the people of Hong Kong would have the sort of liberties and opportunities that people on the Chinese mainland were not allowed to have. He also said that there would be Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong and that they would do so with a great, the, the actual words were with a high degree of autonomy. And you know, since 1997, which is when the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region was established, much of that was actually true. There was quite a high degree of autonomy. Hong Kong people did seem to have the opportunity to rule themselves. And many of the liberties that were unthinkable on the Chinese mainland, namely freedom of expression, freedom of movement, rule of law, 
were prevailing in Hong Kong and were not prevailing elsewhere in China. What's been happening since Beijing stepped in, and without even bothering to consult their own hand-picked leaders in Hong Kong, impose the national security law, is effectively Hong Kong is ruled from Beijing, it's true. There are various people bobbing around with fancy titles who, which would suggest that they are in charge of the government, but they're not. It is true that since the outbreak of the enormous protests, the pro-democracy protests in 1989, mm. Hong Kong now has, sorry, not 1989, I'm going 2019. 2019. I'm, I'm thinking of <laughs> Tiananmen Square, I'm sorry. Um, yes. Hong Kong has more people arrested for political offences, that's over 10,000 people, than in the entire Chinese mainland. I mean, that's a staggering figure. And it is true that by the day, organizations, institutions of civil society are being closed down or being forced to be closed down or their leaders are being arrested so they're unable to function, their bank accounts have been frozen, et cetera, et cetera. And by which I mean trade unions, student unions, artists associations, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in this mixture, of course, as is always the case when you're talking about authoritarian regimes, there is a particular place in hell reserved for people in the media because one of the things that every self-respecting authoritarian Mm. regime wishes to do is to have total control of the media. And I unfortunately seem to have a bit of a ringside seat as all of that. I was a columnist for the Apple Daily newspaper, which was forced to shut down, the only remaining mainstream newspaper supporting the democracy movement. I was a presenter for Radio Television Hong Kong, which is Hong Kong's public broadcaster. And the program I presented, like all of the current affairs programs on television has been closed down. I also worked on the radio side, which at the time, and we're talking about the period I left in late July, just before that, RTHK had had a new set of bosses installed, not only the director of broadcasting, but other people were brought in, essentially with a mission to censor programs and to uh, what they call reform the station in such a way that it no longer ceased to function as a public broadcaster, but increase, increasingly began to function as a propaganda arm of the government. That that process is still not complete. Anyway, at the stage where I left, the radio side, curiously, had been less targeted for reform than the television side. But nonetheless, I was working on one program. I was taken off it because it was considered that I was uh, expressing opinions that were obviously not in line with those of the government. I was put on another program. And... To be honest, I wasn't told to leave. I mean, I would have been, I could see the writing on the wall, but I left of my own accord because it was clear to me that the axe was coming. And in fact, of the second program I was working on, the axe did come. Its main presenter has Mm. been taken off the air. The program is now a, a sort of shadow of its former self. It was the main English language news chat program, if you like. Uh, Now it's allowed to talk about very little indeed. 
are you referring to back chat? Hugh Chiverton yes, was am. just removed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. So this ties into something that you had mentioned in an email that you sent out to friends and colleagues. You referred to the term white terror. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, I, I, I have to say that um, it's a well-known term in, in Hong Kong and uh, in, in Taiwan where it originates. But I realize that mm. when it goes out to the rest of the world, it, it, it looks as though it's some sort of racial um, term. The white terror <laughs> refers to the suppression of the democracy movement, by, ironically, by the Kuomintang in um, Taiwan after they left the, the, main, the Chinese mainland and installed a regime on, on the island of Taiwan and ruthlessly, ruthlessly eliminated the opposition that was there. And the reason why people use white terror as opposed to other terms to describe what's happening in Hong Kong is, as, as was the case in Taiwan, there was a functioning civil society. There were strong elements of opposition to what was then the ruling party, the Kuomintang, who'd imported itself and, uh, and established itself as the rulers of the island. And people look at that and they say, my goodness, this is all happening again, this nightmare that, that Taiwan lived through, particularly in the 1960s, is coming back in Hong Kong. And mm. I think the real relevance of that is if you look at the situation on the Chinese mainland as a whole, of course, there is ultimate control over more or less everything on the mainland. And there is enormous suppression of um, civil liberties and all the rest of it. But that's against a background where it never existed. Under China's imperial rulers, there certainly was no such thing as liberty, freedom of expression and other freedoms. Hong Kong had that. Hong Kong has moved massively backwards from where it was. Admittedly, Hong Kong has been for a century and a half a colonial society with all the very bad things that flow from that, including, and one should not overlook this, a lack of democracy, but a right. high degree of liberty, and that's what no longer exists. So that's an interesting point you mentioned, Steve. You talk about a low degree of democracy, but yet a high degree of liberty. And so the question I want to ask is, do the two need to coexist? Must they always coexist with each other? And clearly from the case of Hong Kong, that doesn't necessarily appear to be the case. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well... I don't want to be absolutist about this, but I mean, it, the, the Hong Kong situation was, by any standards, very unusual, high degree of uh, liberty, low degree of democracy. I mean, you don't find that in practically anywhere else in the world. And remember, in the twilight years of British colonial rule, Hong Kong was indeed moving to a higher degree of democracy there were more elections, there was more greater scope for elected officials. This, of course, was all brought to a very crushing halt in 1997, when sovereignty was handed over to the People's Republic of China. So mm. I think that the anomaly, and it really was an anomaly, of a society 
which enjoyed a high degree of liberty, while the institutions of representative government were minimal, couldn't actually have existed for a very long time. It was an anomaly and it could only go one of two ways. One was to enhance the level of democracy and the other was the way we've seen, which was to match the low level of democracy by the low level of liberty. And that's where we are today. So just in looking at the history of Hong Kong in the handover happened in 1997. That's when the special administrative region <coughs> came into effect. The, it was supposed to last till 2047, right? Yeah. And then things suddenly changed, like you mentioned about 15 months ago. What do you think is the reason for this? Why not, why the resistance to actually last out that 50 years? Well, I mean, this is the um, the big question, isn't it? I mean, and it's something that I've been thinking about and writing about very considerably. I, I think that people like me, and I'll just put myself in there for a moment, were basically naive in assuming hmm. that the long-term goal of the Chinese Communist Party was to allow Hong Kong to retain its peculiar status of one country, two systems. It was very clear, and the more you go back on the record, and I spent a lot of time doing this for my latest book called Define the Dragon, the more you go back on the record, mm -hmm. what you see is that Deng himself always emphasized when he talked about one country, two systems, was the divergence of the two economic systems. In other words, Hong Kong would be a fully fledged capitalist society, whereas the rest of the Chinese mainland would retain its hybrid mixture of state controlled economy with capitalist elements. He made it quite clear, although some of us were not savvy enough to look carefully at what he said, that he never really saw one country, two systems applying to the political or indeed the social sphere. And he was at the early stages insistent on the idea that Hong Kong would not become, if you like, a model for the rest of China in terms of liberty. Nonetheless, nonetheless, mm -hmm. in the early honeymoon years of the handover, a lot of leeway was given to Hong Kong. So what changed? The big thing that changed was the assumption of power by China's current president, Xi Jinping, who has carried out an enormously effective purge of the opposition on the Chinese mainland itself. Um, the number of people who've been purged on the mainland, it's, it's hard to quantify, but it, it runs at least into the hundreds of thousands under the guise of an anti-corruption campaign. Well, of course, corruption is rife in the Chinese mainland, so it's not an implausible guise. But nonetheless, mm. the anti-corruption effort is targeted against anybody who is seen as potentially being a threat to the supremacy of President Xi. So you have that going on in the Chinese mainland. And then you have in 2019, this just extraordinary eruption of protests in Hong Kong. You had at one stage, 2 million people on the streets. That's out of a population mm -hmm. 
of 7.4 million. You know, if you transpose that level of political participation in street demonstrations onto the United States of America, that would mean that you'd have had to have demonstrations at least in their uh, tens of millions to be anything like in proportionate terms, the same as what happened in Hong Kong. So you had this uprising in Hong Kong, triggered by a ham-fisted attempt at currying favor with the bosses in Beijing by Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, who wanted to introduce a new law to make extradition from Hong Kong to the mainland possible so that the in integrity of the judicial system in Hong Kong would be undermined because people could simply be shipped across the border and face the judicial system there where 99 point whatever it is percent of people who appear in court are found guilty. People in Hong Kong looked at that, they said, no, we don't want that, we're going to protest. And they did, and they stopped that bill in its mm -hmm. tracks. But it was more than that. Inevitably, as in all protest movements, you know, it's no good moaning saying, oh, you know, it started with this and it developed into something else. That's what happens. It happens everywhere. You know, you look at um, the, the Vietnam uh, protest movement in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. Yes, it was about Vietnam, but it became a much more general protest movement, as they always do. Mm -hmm. And in Hong Kong, it became a protest movement calling for a greater degree of um, democracy. The Chinese leadership said, how is it that in part of our sovereign charity territory, we have these massive acts of defiance? This cannot be allowed to go on. Now, the narrative that is spun by the Communist Party and by its ciphers in Hong Kong is that the people of Hong Kong, the terrible people of Hong Kong, brought all these troubles on themselves by provoking the mainland. The reality is that the mainland authorities, the Chinese Communist Party, was ready to be provoked. It was only a question of when it would happen. So it's possible that the protests accelerated the process. That's clearly arguable. It's possible that the protests focus minds in Beijing, also perfectly plausible. What isn't plausible mm -hmm. is the notion that China and the government in Beijing would ultimately have tolerated Hong Kong's continuing high degree of liberty. That simply was not ever on the cards and it became clearer and clearer as the days went by. Indeed, and you talk about this spirit, this incredible Hong Kong spirit to overcome adversity. You mention it in your articles. It's clear from the examples you've just mentioned. I'd love to ask you, at what point do you think it breaks? Does it break? Has it broken? Or at what stage of breaking is it? Well, you don't ask easy questions, do you? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I but um, <laughs> having lived in Hong Kong myself, I this is very personal to me as well. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And these are perfectly valid questions. Look, I, I think that um, the spirit of Hong Kong has been delivered an enormous body blow, enormous body blow. 
But have people's hearts changed? It's true, people are not out on the streets demonstrating. It's far too dangerous to do that. It's true that, that, that the media is now largely under total control. And it's true that, that literally tens of thousands of people are leaving Hong Kong in despair. I mean, I'm at the moment living in a small town near London. I'm absolutely staggered. Every time I go out, I hear people talking Cantonese and I often talk to them. They're people who've arrived in the last few weeks to Britain because they can do under the new British nationality scheme. So all of those things are true. But you have a silent and sullen population. You have people terrified of the consequences of raising their voices. You have a purge of the schools, a purge of the universities, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how does this, the enormous spirit, the freewheeling spirit of Hong Kong survive all of this? I'm not sure. I mean, Hong Kong has weathered enormous adversity. People forget when they talk about the, the unrest that was caused by the 2019 and 2020 demonstrations that during the 1960s, in the spillover from the Cultural Revolution on the Chinese mainland, Hong Kong streets were literally filled with blood. People were assassinated, bombs were going off by the agents of the Chinese Communist Party who were trying to ferment the kind of unrest that, that, that was seen across the border on the mainland. Hong Kong survived the 1960s and came back stronger. Hong Kong has survived enormous economic recessions, has survived many, many things and come back stronger. So the question is, will it survive this? And I think the jury is out. I don't think there is a nice, neat, simple answer to that question. What I fear is that so many people, good people, people who are the absolute bedrock of Hong Kong's success will just up sticks and leave that it, you will have a denuded population. I know there's very brave people who've decided not to do that. And I, I, I sit here in admiration of them. But, you know, mm -hmm. there are a hell of a lot of people leaving. The systems of um, civil society are, are being crushed by the day. And most importantly, the great thing that Hong Kong had, rule of law, is being undermined. The right to trial by jury, which incidentally is embedded in Hong Kong's mini constitution called the basic law, is now been overturned. The judiciary finds that its independence is undermined by the fact that the chief executive, the political leader of Hong Kong, can appoint judges at her pleasure to preside over national security trials. I mean, the list goes on and on. I don't think Hong Kong has ever faced this kind of firestorm and the consequences of that i because it's so enormous are very hard to see i think we're too close to it now to know how that will pan out now steve you've mentioned a few instances of places outside of hong kong england where you are now perhaps and sort of the society there and, and you talk about sort of the relevance of this spirit even outside of Hong Kong. My question is, what can other geographies, societies 
learn from this. I am based in San Francisco. In America, we have been seeing a changing political sphere. It's becoming increasingly liberal, even the right wing. Uh, conservative side is not what it used to be. In India, where I hail from, we've got uh, right-wing domination in a way we've never had before. Different countries have different political systems and societies are affected as a result of it. Is there something that these societies outside of Hong Kong can look to the special administrative region or to this particular part of the world and observe and say, all right, here is the learning, here is the takeaway. Is that possible? Well, and if so, what is it? Well, I think that one of the big takeaways would be, if you look at how the People's Republic of China treats its own people, and you look at the rhetoric that it makes as being a, a, a sort of normal player on the great international stage, working for the progress and betterment of mankind, you know it can't possibly be true. If a country as large and as powerful as China is so insecure in its own shoes that it cannot tolerate opposition, that it gets excited and goes into a fury if, for example, you know, a, a US baseball player says the word Taiwan and, you know, there's these enormous repercussions um, the goods are banned and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, here is a country that wants to be a dominant power in the rest of the world, but is at base insecure. Here is a country that has a leadership that basically distrusts its own people to the extent that it will not allow them to freely express their opinions or function in a way that in open societies, people are accustomed to function. So that when people look at dealing with the People's Republic of China, I think it's important to remember that when it had an opportunity to prove itself to the rest of the world as, so to speak, a reformed, open-minded government, it simply looked at that opportunity and blew it away. The circumstances under which Hong Kong was handed over to Chinese rule were accompanied by an international treaty called the Joint Declaration, under which mm. China gave certain undertakings, unprecedented undertakings, incidentally, regarding Hong Kong's autonomy and what have you. What does China have to say about the Joint Declaration? I mean, it's astonishing. They actually say this. Yeah. They go, oh, well, no, that's a relic of history. We're no longer interested in what that declaration said. Well, goodness me, if you sign a treaty and then decide that, that, that when it becomes inconvenient to you to adhere to the terms of that treaty and you simply describe it as a relic of history, I think other countries have to sit back and say, goodness, what will happen if we sign a treaty with the People's Republic of China and they declare that when it's inconvenient to adhere to the terms of that treaty, they'll simply ignore it. I mean, that's an enormous takeaway. It is. Steve, so much more I want to ask you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Can you tell us a little bit about your book, Defying the Dragon, and enlighten our audiences as to where they can buy it and learn more about not just the book, but 
any of your other writing? Where can we find you? Well, you can't find me in Hong Kong mainstream media anymore because I've become a non-person. But there, there is an online publication which I'm still a regular contributor to called Hong Kong Free Press. The book, which I hadn't intended to write. I mean, I know people keep saying this when they write books, but it, it's true. I, I had originally thought that what I would do was I would, I'd offered to um, my publisher an updated version of a book I'd written earlier called Hong Kong, China's New Colony. I said, you know, that book was written in the late 1980s. Lots happened since then, particularly after the protests. Isn't it time for me to update it? And then they, they sort of looked at it and hummed and hard. I then had a new literary agent and she said to me, oh, don't be ridiculous. You need a whole new book. I mean, the, the situation has changed so radically. There's no point in updating a book. You've got to sit down and write a big new book. And it, it grew like Topsy, but it grew like Topsy because I realized that although it focuses on the protest movement of, of 2019 and 2020, to understand that, and this was satisfying my own curiosity, I had to explore the development of the Hong Kong identity. I had to look much more carefully at what people were saying about the interrelationship between Hong Kong and the mainland economy, because this dictates so much of why Hong Kong has had international prominence as a conduit for entry into the economy of the world's biggest country. And it occurred to me that there was something inherently fascinating about the peculiar politics of Hong Kong, this high degree of liberty, low degree of um, political rights and indeed responsibilities. And, you know, I just thought the more I looked into it, it needed writing about. And hopefully that's what's reflected in the book. And it's... Um, it can be obtained on all the major outlets like Amazon and um, uh, Book Depository. I mean, it is there. It, it, the movie rights haven't been sold. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to make a really interesting one. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Steve Vines. He is a British journalist and author of Defying the Dragon, which is available at uh, bookstores, Online, offline, offline as well, Steve? Yep, yep. The, the, apparently yes. there is a Kindle lurking somewhere. Okay. Steve, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. And I am your host, Renita Hura. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. White Terror. This story was written by M. L. from Gaza. Bob Hayworth was not an ordinary man. Some of his colleagues in London called him a leftover, a remnant of the British colonialism era, an MI5 spook chasing cute young princesses in Hong Kong. But for the people of the special administrative region, his liberating words on radio represented an unexplained sense of safety, of immunity, the comforting voice of a protective father 
during a time of hardship. To them, he was an activist, representing their cause against the oppressive dragon to the north, China. Bob had spent the past thirty-five years in Hong Kong, brandishing high the flag of freedom, democracy, individualism, and civil liberties. It had become home in every possible way, and he became a founding father of the Civic Party, reminding Hong Kong's seven million citizens of the price they had to endure to maintain freedom. Bob's nightmares began in spring 2019, when the Chinese government bullied the Hong Kong leadership into dropping the One Country, Two Systems doctrine by imposing a new national security law designed to eliminate what had been called, up until then, progressive, free, and democratic territory. He was enraged by rumors that had begun to circulate early the year before. The law had not yet been announced, but he noticed something strange, an unexplained series of malfunctions in the broadcasting equipment at the public radio station where he worked. Was it coincidence, or something pre-planned, or just a figment of his imagination? as the authorities purported when he took it upon himself to complain. Bob called it white terror. He had seen it coming ever since the Chinese liaison office purchased the South China Morning Post through the so-called progressive lens of Alibaba. He knew it was a matter of time before his beloved radio station would be taken from him too, because he represented the old Hong Kong, the Hong Kong that people knew and loved, the Hong Kong that he become home to his heart. One evening, later that year, Bob walked out on Granville Street with no particular aim. He merely wanted to defy the recent fear that most residents experienced by going outside at night a fear that had begun since the revolution and pro-democracy protests earlier that year, a fear initiated by a massive authoritarian crackdown setting off kidnappings, mass arrests, murder, and torture. Bob's mental state was disturbed. In the past several months, he had developed a sense of dis-ease that wouldn't go away. A piercing noise banged inside his head. He could no longer hold a meal inside his fragile digestive system. He claimed to smell corpses during his sleeping hours. The doctors insisted that all this was a figment of his imagination. You just need rest, they said. Everything is fine. But Bob's mental, physical, and emotional being was seized by paranoia. A figure of my imagination, he wondered. Were the doctors traitors too? Bob's dis-ease was suddenly interrupted by a loud noise of something hitting the ground. Hard just a few feet away. When he turned to look, he saw a girl, maybe 19 or 20 years old, with a steady flow of blood gushing forth from a hole in her chest. She had fallen from Tycoon Court, the apartment building looming before him. Her eyes pierced his with a helpless gaze that clanged louder than a million screams. She was alive, yet taking her last few deep breaths. It all lasted not more than a few seconds. But to Bob, it felt like a thousand years. A part of him 
dying right there with her. And then lights of an emergency vehicle flashed from behind. How could an ambulance arrive in just moments after she had fallen? Bob thought. Who were these people in the street? Where had they come from? He became conscious of a group of people gathered around him. They stared at him with eyes of the devil. Bob heard the voice of his deceased father. Walk away, my son. Walk away from this place. Bob's body wanted to tremble, yet his mind controlled that deep sense of fear. He cast his eyes towards the now-dead girl before him as he heard the ambulance driver speak. We tried to save her, but we were too late. She committed suicide. It's common these days. But Bob knew this was no suicide. No accident, either. The girl's black clothes and scarf revealed she was a revolutionary from the black-clad pro-democracy movement. This was no cute young princess, yet it was clear to him that she had been pushed from some high floor in that apartment building to deliver a message specifically to him. They had watched him. They had seen him plan his walk that evening, and they had planned accordingly. Was this, too, a figment of his imagination? They waited for me to be in this exact spot, he murmured to himself, and then dropped her from that high floor to deliver a message. They did not kill her. I did. For five days, Bob could not shake the thought. They did not kill her. I did. For five days, his phone did not ring. His internet did not work. No one knocked on his door. It was white terror in full swing. Was this, too, a figment of his imagination? Bob's head throbbed deeper with each day that passed, a newfound sadness accentuating the fear. He wished he had been the one to die. And so on the sixth day, after thirty-five years in Hong Kong, he packed his bags and headed back to where he had come from. England, once again, became home to his body. But Hong Kong remained home to his heart. Barely a few months later, the Hong Kong government adopted the new national security law, establishing a painful new normal. The territory went from being a bastion of free will, to a place in which the air reeked with the odor of fear-mongering. Bob sat in his England cottage home, helpless, torn, heartbroken, at a complete loss for what to do. Yet, over the months, he continued to be reassured by a massive network of Hong Kong activists. Their actions signaled that the battle for freedom was far from over, and so, once again, he picked up his crusade of communication against the reign of white terror, even from his makeshift home studio. He spoke into his microphone, connecting by Zoom this time with a public radio show host in America. Were it not for the revolutionaries, we all would be slaves to the current dynasty, Bob said. Freedom is a right that isn't granted, but rather can be taken by force, if absolutely necessary. Right then, a sound of fuzz and static cut short his delivery as the before the Zoom connection went dead. Bob's heart sank once again. He heaved a sigh as moved his fingers along the trackpad in an attempt to reconnect. Was this also a 
figment of his imagination? Or was it the oppressive dragon to the north of home? A dragon that insisted on weighing down a heart that so wanted to be lifted? Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.